Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. This is Jan Dawson. Just a quick note before we start this week. Unfortunately, we had some kind of an audio issue on Aaron's end of the recording. Uh, the audio quality is a lot lower than it usually is. It sounds something like Aaron's on the other end of a phone line or something. Not quite sure what happened. Unfortunately, the original audio was unrecoverable. So apologies that the audio quality on one half of the podcast will be a little subpar this week. Hopefully it won't detract at all from your ability to enjoy the episode. And we hope it's a one-off and we'll be back to normal next week. Thanks. Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and with me is Aaron Miller. Uh, we've got our usual framework and uh, agenda for you today. We've got a news roundup to start things off. We're going to talk about Fitbit's preliminary results. We'll talk about the partnership between Comcast and Roku over a, uh, an app for Comcast's Xfinity TV service on the Roku boxes. And then we're going to talk about Slack's Enterprise Grid announcement. That will be our three news roundup topics. We'll then move into our question of the week. And the focus of our question of the week this week is narratives. And it's really about what is a narrative in the sense of tech news. And I'm going to use this uh, both as an interesting topic of discussion in its own right, but we're also going to use it as a way to introduce a new service and website that I'm launching this week that we'll talk about in that context too. And then our third segment, we'll talk and do a deep dive on Apple's earnings from last night. So we're recording this on Wednesday morning. Uh, Apple reported its earnings on Tuesday afternoon. So I'm going to do something of a deep dive into Apple's earnings, which we previewed uh, in the last week's episode. And then we'll wrap up, as usual, with a weekly pick. So let's kick off with our news roundup. And first of all, Fitbit uh, reported preliminary results. They don't usually do this, but they wanted to make some uh, specific announcements around the fact they were going to fall short of their guidance and also the fact they're going to be laying off about 6% of their workforce. Uh, their full results will come out in another couple of weeks. Um, but, you know, essentially their Q4 results were well down on where they expected them to be and uh, they were disappointed with the sales. Uh, interestingly, in the press release about this, they suggested this was essentially a temporary setback um, to still making the claim that everything's basically hunky-dory but that there are some temporary uh, situations that they're working through here. Um, Aaron, what was your take on all this? I've been pretty skeptical about Fitbit's future for a while now, so I think this fits with my expectations. I don't think it's impossible for them to turn it around, but I don't think they can do it just continuing what they've been doing. I think uh, just regular fitness devices don't have the stability. There's a, there's a huge burn rate, and we've talked about this before. There's a huge burn rate um, and uh, in, in people buying these devices, using them for a brief amount of time and then never coming back to them. <clears throat> you know, we talked, in fact, before Christmas about how a lot of Fitbits are given as gifts, a huge number are given as gifts, which says something about the demand for your product when it's something that people tend to buy for other people instead of for themselves. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so I don't know. I mean, whether or not, you know, they're doomed in the future, I'm, I'm not going to go that far but it seems like they would need to make a big change. I don't know whether that's an Android Wear device, you know, with with Fitbit, you know, stuff baked into it. But it's it definitely seems like the the path right now doesn't have a good ending. Yeah, there was some discussion in the press release, and I think some of the commentary around it from the CEO about the smartwatch space specifically. So I'm not convinced it will be Android Wear necessarily. Obviously, they've bought the Fitbit assets. They've bought some other assets recently as well from other smartwatch companies. And so that seems to be a category they're doubling down on, which is interesting. And we'll obviously talk about this later in the context of Apple's results. But as a category, smartwatches really haven't taken off. One has, and that's the Apple Watch. Everything else seems to really have struggled. And so uh, Fitbit kind of doubling down on that rather than focusing on where they've already done well is an interesting step. Um, but yeah, it just, uh, you know, Fitbit has dominated this sort of dedicated fitness wearables space. Everybody else has been in trouble. Jawbone seems to be imminently about to go out of business, for example. Fitbit has been the success story and they're still profitable. Uh, but this was the first quarter that they hadn't grown year on year. And, and they're looking more and more like GoPro. And in fact, I think they're currently worth, le worth less than GoPro. Um, so, you know, it's it's a story that I started talking about about a year and a half ago, talking about one-trick ponies in tech, that if you do one product, and if that product doesn't have a really big addressable market, eventually you run out of runway. And that really feels like it's happening with Fitbit at this point, and it's hard to see how things are going to change. I just don't really buy their arguments about this being some kind of a temporary situation. Yeah, I, I do think there's room for a non-Apple Watch smartwatch to do well. Um but it needs to sort of take the approach that the Apple Watch has done 
much more closely than I think a lot of other Android Android Wear devices have done. I think, for example, most Android Wear devices have been way too masculine, mm-hmm. like just big, for example. Yep. And I, I think there's 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 room for better industrial design on that space where people would buy it as an alternative to the Apple Watch. Right. But, but you know, you have to have the design chops for it. I, I think Fitbit arguably does, but, you know, we'll see what they would actually execute on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's move on then to the Comcast Roku announcement this week. And this coincided with the first meeting of the FCC under uh, Ajit Pai, who is going to be the new chairman of the FCC, assuming he's confirmed um, in the Senate. Um, he takes over from Tom Wheeler, who's been the chair of the FCC for the last few years. Ajit Pai has been on the uh, FCC as a commissioner for the last several years. He's a fairly conservative a Republican on the commission. Uh, he has opposed things like net neutrality regulation and opposed set-top box reform, which Tom Wheeler had been pushing. And so uh, in the first meeting, it became clear that he's basically shelved any discussion of ongoing work on that set-top box reform, um, which he'd kind of opposed all along. So uh, on the one hand, the regulatory approach to changing the way set-top boxes work and kind of opening that market up seems to be dying. And on the other hand, you have this announcement from Comcast and Roku. You almost wonder whether they held off on the announcement to release it on the very same day as the the FCC news came in. Because Comcast and the other cable companies have kind of argued throughout, look, there are market forces here. They're going to take care of this. Uh, We don't need policy and regulation to change this. You know, it's already happening. Look at the work we're doing. And Comcast, a few months back, had basically said, you know, we'll make our some of our stuff available basically to third-party box makers who want to make stuff with it. And, um, you know, Roku was one of the companies that had expressed interest in that, and now they're moving forward on that. Some interesting details that are worth noting. So essentially you're going to be able to watch your Xfinity TV service from Comcast on a Roku box instead of a Comcast set-top box. Uh, but it will be just on Roku for now, so it's not on Apple TV, for example, for now. Uh, for now, you also still have to have a set-top box in the house as well for some reason. And the plan is also to charge you for the privilege of using your own Roku box instead of a set-top box. So, you know, some of the things that are most attractive about the idea of using one of these third-party set-top boxes are you don't have to pay for the cable company's hardware and you get to ditch their nasty box, basically. And so you can't do either of those things for now. Uh, with the Rocky thing, you're still paying and you still for now at least have to have the set-top box. That's going to change later in the year. So interesting sort of innovation here, but um, these two stories very much kind of go together. Yeah, I think what <clears throat> I, I think what you need to look at to really understand the story is that set-top boxes have been a revenue source for cable companies, right? It's a, you pay a rental fee on top of... And massive profits fee. too, yeah. Exactly, because it's kind of a ridiculous... It, it's it's not unlike a monopoly power pricing model. Um, and, and because there's not a whole lot of competition in this space, I wouldn't expect the revenue to go away just because the device changes, right? And instead of a Motorola manufacturer box, now it's a box manufactured by Roker, maybe someday, you know, Apple with the Apple TV. They're going to be fighting for the revenue model to stay the same. And so which just feels weird because it's not reflecting the true cost of the cable service, you know, and what it will eventually take is somebody in the space, basically saying, Hey, we're done with all the silly fees. Here's one flat thing. Use it on whatever device you already have plugged into your TV. There's not a ton of pressure for that day to come right now is, is the thing that remains the same. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, I was always skeptical about the FCC set-top box reform. Uh, I know a lot of the same people that get very excited about net neutrality are excited about that too. Um, Just the details of it felt like it wasn't going to be the right approach to really make a big difference in the market. And obviously now it's it's not going to happen at all. But I was never hugely optimistic that the approach the FCC was taking was actually going to deliver the results that some people were hoping it would. And so, um, you know, in some ways I don't think it's a huge loss that it's not happening I still think at some point, and we've kind of talked about this before in the broader context of the disruption that's happening in the TV market, I still think that at some point these guys do reach a tipping point where they say, hey, you know, we have to work the way customers want us to work, otherwise we're going to lose their business. And, and you know, we're in significant danger of that happening right now. And I don't think we've reached that point yet. And I think Comcast clearly sees the writing on the wall to some extent, and they're starting to experiment with some of these things in small ways. 
Um, but I do think you know there's there's potential for for the market forces eventually to get this right uh, and actually to to make a more meaningful difference. You know, if there was an Xfinity app on my Apple TV, I might well consider going back to some kind of cable uh, pay TV plan, which you know I ditched some time ago. Um, because that's the interface I want to use. It's where I watch everything else that I want to watch, you know. And cable's interface on its set-top boxes is better than most. Comcast, rather, is better than most. The X1 platform's actually very good um, and quite advanced. But, uh, you know, in general, it's not the box that I use for everything else. And so I'd like to just use a single box and have my pay TV be yet another app, essentially, on that box. Right. The erosion of the power of cable companies and satellite companies right now is not going to happen on the on the set top box side. It's going to happen on the over the top services side. Right. It's going to be the content providers that are striking out on their own through these through these devices that people can buy outside of the cable company. Right. Absolutely. And and it is going to be an erosion. It's not going to be one fell swoop. It's going to just be happening bit by bit. Yeah. Absolutely. And the other interesting wrinkle here, of course, is that once you've got an app on something like a Roku as Comcast, you could theoretically offer it outside of where your households are. So, you know, Comcast only offers service in certain parts of the country, lots of other parts of the country where it doesn't offer any kind of TV service or broadband today, but it could theoretically offer Xfinity TV as an over-the-top service on Roku and Apple TV devices anywhere in the country if it wanted to, much the way that, you know, AT&T and DirecTV now have DirecTV now. Um, So... Uh, you know, that's another possibility that can, could come out of all of this experimentation as well. Um, let's move on to our third news roundup topic, which is Slack's announcement of its enterprise grid. And Slack's obviously this enterprise, I guess, communication messaging app, depends how you want to describe it. Um, alternative to email, some people is, think of it that way. Um, but it announced an enterprise grid, which is basically a fancy way of saying it's a more sort of fully fledged communication platform for within an enterprise that can be controlled and sort of segmented in a more granular way. And Aaron, I think you've read about this a little bit. You sounded quite excited about it when we talked before we started recording. So do you want to talk us through it a little bit? Well, the biggest change up until this announcement, essentially the way Slack worked is that everybody within the organization was already in one gigantic team. And you can create subsets for communications, channels, private groups, that sort of a thing. But but fundamentally, everybody is in a big team. The problem um, for Slack with that approach is if you get into companies that have hundreds of thousands of employees, that's a really unwieldy way to manage uh uh, team communications, because if you pull up a directory, it's going to show everybody, for example, rather than just the people in your team. And and so this approach <clears throat> essentially creates a higher level layer within the way Slack operates. So you have an organizational level, and then under that, you can create teams that are, that are, are smaller and more focused on whatever your part of the company is. It, it's, a, it's funny because it's not all that sophisticated of an approach, not saying that the coding involved is trivial, but but it's an important uh, change because it makes the large-scale adoption of Slack a lot more likely. Um, I can already think of places here at BYU where I teach where I think that change could make a Slack adoption much more likely. I, I love Slack. I use it for a bunch of the student teams I manage, and, and I use it because I, I just like getting out of email. I, I kind of hate email, and the sooner it dies, the better, in my opinion, but the nice thing about Slack is to me, it doesn't feel like this is starting to sound like a product endorsement. now. <laughs> to me, it doesn't feel like file management. Like what I don't like about emails, it feels like file management. Like people are constantly dumping files in mm. this, you know, in this inbox that I stick outside my office door and anybody can walk by and just drop stuff in. What I like about Slack is it allows me to prioritize where I'm getting messages from, but it also means I don't have to feel like there's, there's stuff for me to manage file wise. Right, it's just communication mm. is all instead yeah. of file management on top of that. So, I'm excited to see it adopted by more organizations. I think where it's really exciting is where you could have inter-organizational Slack conversations. That's where email still is irreplaceable, right? Because if I'm going to be talking, communicating with somebody outside of my company, I have to do it via email instead of Slack. And I think it would be really cool is to eventually have the ability to do that within Slack. It is a scary thought, though, to think of one company. Uh, with its one product essentially replacing email, which is very democratic as far mm-hmm. as the technology is concerned. So, right. But that said, I do like Slack a lot better right now. Yeah, yeah, interesting. I, I've only used Slack a little bit. Um, 
it really took off after I left a big organization and started my own company. And so the only context in which I've used it is uh, with the Tech Pinions team that I work with, um, where I contribute to the Tech Pinions website. And we used it for a while there, and we actually stopped using it again because it was used so little um, because our interactions were fairly limited. Um, I liked it a lot, I liked the interface and so on. But, uh, you know, I, my, I always wonder about this argument that Slack is going to replace, or anything like it, frankly, is going to replace email rather than simply be additive to it. And what I worry about is that a lot of enterprises where Slack comes along, it's supposed to replace email, and now you have email and Slack to manage, I think, in many cases. And to your point, you still can't entirely abandon email because everybody outside the organization is using it and probably plenty of people inside are still using it as well. And so a lot of the time now you have two communication channels to manage. And so, um, you know, I I think there's a lot of promise there, but I think there's also a lot of danger in the idea that you add another communications channel and it makes your life easier rather than more complicated. And maybe Slack's the more enjoyable communication channel to spend time in, but it doesn't mean you get to ditch email entirely just yet, I guess. Yeah, but it does mean I get fewer emails in my inbox. Okay, that's, that's good. That's, yeah. that's, enough. that's yeah. a bonus. There you go. <laughs> All right, well, let's move on to our question of the week. And uh, really the question this week is, what is a narrative in the context of tech news? Um, you know, there's a, n- a narrative is a term that we see bandied around a fair amount. So I'm going to talk about kind of the definition of, of what we mean by a narrative. But I'm going to use this, as I said, up front as a jumping off point for talking about a, a website that I've been working on recently uh, which focuses on this narrative concept and tries to kind of add some value to the news that bounces around in the industry. So I'm going to be answering the questions today, and Aaron's going to be asking them. And let's start with that big question. Um, you know, normally we dig in in a more pointed way into these topics, but I think it's best to start with the big question: What is a narrative, and what do you mean when you say a tech narrative? Yeah, that's a good starting point, I think. And uh, back in April of 2014, I wrote a piece for Tech Pinions called <coughs> "The Danger of Narratives in Tech," and it's an idea that's really been bouncing around in my head ever since then. The kind of non-tech example that I used to kind of kick that piece off was around presidential candidates and presidents in the United States, uh, where there have been a number that uh, have had this sort of narrative form around them. So, you know, Gerald Ford was clumsy. And so when he fell down the stairs of an airplane, you know, that fell into this broader narrative of he was a clumsy guy. You know, Jimmy Carter was out of touch. And when he uh, you know, ate a tamale with a shell still on. You know, it was clear he'd never done this before. So this this idea was to sort of show how in touch and man of the people he was, and yet he didn't even know how to eat a tamale, you know. And uh, Mitt Romney was a flip-flopper. I mean, you can kind of keep going with this. And, um, you know, those are political narratives, essentially. They're stories that start to emerge around a president or a presidential candidate that gain their own momentum over time. And so each new piece of news isn't seen as a piece of news in its own right independently. It's seen within the context of that narrative. And so in many cases, it reinforces a narrative where, you know, other presidents fell downstairs. um, And apparently our new president is frightened of stairs. But um, the the fact is that it was only Gerald Ford falling downstairs that became an issue because it was part of this broader narrative and so on and so forth. And so, you know, these narratives emerge around presidents and presidential candidates, but they emerge around tech companies as well. And, um, you know, narratives are basically stories that start to be told around companies that gain currency and that, um, you know, start to be the context in which additional pieces of news are seen. And so those new pieces of news can either reinforce or challenge those narratives. And a lot of the time in news reporting, um, you know, no reporter just wants to write a story straight off a press release. They want to set it in context somehow. And so, you know, they often try to set it in the context of one of these narratives. And so these narratives grow over time. They gain momentum, as I say, and they start to take on a life of their own to a great extent. And, you know, um, the examples that I used back when I wrote that piece in 2014, Google is evil is one of the ones that I uh, used at the time. You know, there were several things going on at the time that seemed to contradict Google's mantra of not being evil. Um, You know, Amazon isn't interested in making money. At the time, Amazon was regularly losing money or making very little profit. Uh, And so, you know, that was another narrative at the time. So those are just some examples. But that's really kind of what I mean by a narrative. So where, I mean, you talked a little bit about this idea, but let's talk more about where they come from, because it seems like some of these narratives come out of the blue. I mean, it might be that one event gets focused on, but by, by the press, by consumers. But I mean, what's really happening when a narrative is created? 
Yeah, I think narratives come from a couple of different places. They either come from inside or outside the company, frankly. And so sometimes a narrative is a story a company is trying to tell about itself. And so a company makes a conscious effort to plug a particular aspect of its business, to talk about its culture, to talk about its products in a way that is supposed to create one of these narratives, just supposed to create this powerful story that people engage with, believe in, and that then anything that the company does in future is kind of seen in the context of that story. And so, you know, brand <laughs> marketing is arguably about trying to create narratives and it might be around innovation, it might be around quality, it might be around, you know, an enjoyable driving experience if you're BMW, you know, there's any number of different kinds of narratives that companies can create around themselves. In tech, it does tend to be around innovation, around the quality of products, around um, you know, how how well the products perform, you know, performance and so on. Um, so that's one flavor of narrative is the ones that companies create about themselves in a very deliberate and manufactured way in some ways, um, typically through their marketing and PR departments. Um, the other kinds of narratives come from outside the companies and they're often created by the media or other observers. And so it might be financial analysts, it might be news reporters, it might be industry analysts like me, it might be uh, other companies, it might be competitors that start to try to tell a story about one of their competitors that eventually begins to stick. Uh, those are much more challenging if you're the company that's the focus of the narrative because you don't control it. You didn't start it and so you can't necessarily end it. And so all you can really do is try to shape that narrative to combat it, to provide evidence uh, or ideally provide an alternative narrative that's more powerful and more convincing. Um, but they either come from within the companies and very deliberately created and often well controlled by the companies themselves or they're created from outside, in which case they can be quite damaging if they're negative narratives. It's worth noting as well that not all narratives involve specific companies. So sometimes the narrative is about, you know, Apple is doomed or whatever, but sometimes it's uh, a narrative about, you know, VR is finally taking off or conversely, maybe the narrative is VR still doesn't seem to be uh, entering the mainstream, you know. So it's about a technology rather than about a specific company or product. So there are non-company specific narratives as well. Um, but they get created by the companies themselves, they get created by people outside. And depending on whether you as the company that's the focus of a narrative to create them or not, it can be that much harder to control them, to combat them, to shape them, to, to put your own narrative out there, to try to replace that narrative that's out there already. It seems like a company has a harder time because of authenticity issues creating their own narrative. Because obviously a narrative that a company creates has a motive behind it, whereas yeah. a narrative that's just sort of created out in the press or in the public mind doesn't necessarily have a motive driving it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's a, I mean, yeah, there's definitely a you would say that, wouldn't you, kind of thing about a company creating right. its own narrative. But there's also, I think there's a, a pretty pervasive sort of cynicism and skepticism that, that, skepticism in a healthy way, cynicism when it becomes less healthy around tech um you know a lot of tech reporters are pretty jaded they've been doing this for a long time they've seen the same thing over and over again you know and so they're always looking for a new angle frankly they're looking for the counterpoint to a success story they're looking for you know why this amazing run that this company is having can't go on forever you know you're always looking for that angle i think as a tech reporter or as a columnist or, or even as a financial analyst you're looking for the risks you know and perhaps in a more balanced way but um, because of that, I think there's always this drive to, for people outside companies to, to try to find their own narrative, not just to kind of swallow the, uh, the narrative that's being pitched by the company to drink the Kool-Aid, you know, but rather to kind of reject that and to form their own story and, and vision of what's happening with the company. And, you know, that's admirable. It's good to be independent if you're a reporter to form your own opinions about a company, but it does often feel like it's clutching at straws in some ways that it's sort of trying to find a narrative where there is none. I mean, there was a story this week from the the Wall Street Journal, I think it was, talking about Apple's secret profit center that nobody talks about. And if you actually read the article, it was their services business, which, you know, Tim Cook has talked up on every earnings call for probably a year and a half now. You know, it's been a major right. focus of the company. So, you know, this idea that there's somehow this secret profit center within Apple that nobody talks about is bizarre. But, you know, sometimes journalists really do kind of clutch at straws. More often, it's subtler than that. Um, but yeah, there's definitely, you know, there's definitely inherent skepticism about the narrative a company itself is pushing and, and a tendency to try to create one's own narrative about the stuff that you write about. Right. So a website dedicated to this topic of narratives is a really interesting idea. Kind of, kind of tell us more about what you, what you're, what you're planning with that, what you're doing, um, what you're hoping to accomplish with it. Yeah. So uh, back in 2014, when I wrote that piece, you know, that, that topic was, 
in my mind and it's something that's really gone away since and I've used the word narrative a lot since then. I think it's a really powerful way of thinking about the stories that get told about companies uh, and it's also a way that allows you to talk about whether that narrative is actually accurate or not. And I think you know part of my job as an industry analyst is to try to question the narratives that get told about companies to in some cases drive my own narratives about them too but you know really to, to double check those narratives and ask whether they're really accurate or not whether the stories that are being told are are, are true are based in fact or based in prejudice or something else um, and so that idea has been bouncing around my head for a long time and I've used it in my writing since then but in uh, December so last month um well, month before last, I guess it's technically the February, February 1st today. Um, so just before Christmas anyway, I had this idea of a website called Tech Narratives, um, which would basically try to address that in a systematic way. And so the site that I've created since then, and it's technarratives.com, very simple URL. This live has been live for a month and a half now. Um, I've been working on it since then, and I haven't sort of released it to the public until now, uh, other than some beta testers, basically, uh, because I've been working on some of the content still. But since mid-December, I've been working on it as if it's something that I want to do over the long term. Uh, and this website does several things. It, it takes the day's tech news, so somewhere between 5 and 20 individual pieces of tech news in the form of an article, uh, links to those and then has a paragraph basically about that tech news that seeks to dissect the news and the analysis and the narratives that are within that news and kind of put it in context. So the article states, you know, a fact or a bit of reporting about something that, that somebody's either alleged or that's rumored or whatever, and then, you know, wraps some context around it. And so what I do is I break that down and say, here's the actual news. And here's where I think the article's wrong about the conclusions or, or here's how I see this happening. And uh, and so on. So that's part of it is kind of breaking these individual pieces of news down. But then the other part of the site is that I have, uh, you know, several dozen individual narratives, some of which are company specific, some of which are more sort of industry level. But uh, most of the news items on the site are tagged against one or more of those narratives such that the, the piece doesn't exist independently. It's actually tied into one of these narratives. And then if you click on the tag that represents that narrative, there's an essay, if you like, or a short article uh, that talks about that narrative and kind of my view on it. So it sort of looks at all the evidence on both sides and says, OK, is this what is the narrative, first of all? And then is it accurate? What's really going on here? And so each piece of news is put in its own context, but it's also tied back to one of these narratives narratives that then gives you the kind of broader background and context and my intention is that those narratives which will have all been written now um, will be updated as, as time goes on so over the last couple of weeks I've updated a couple of those narratives of new, new pieces of news have come out that shape those narratives and so um, so the website is intended to put the, the tech news in context uh, each piece of news gets its own little paragraph uh, but it's also tied into these broader narratives the narratives themselves are also then evaluated and described in a way that then hopefully helps to provide a sort of objective viewpoint on that narrative uh, and so that's the idea of the site and so it's designed to help anybody who follows tech news and you might be somebody who works in the industry you might be a reporter you might be a financial analyst you might be um, somebody who needs to buy products from the industry um, somebody who's uh, following it for some other reason somebody who's just interested in it for personal reasons you know this really takes that news puts it in context because most people don't have the time to go hunt around to find, you know, what's the real story here? You kind of have to either believe what you read in the press or be inherently skeptical about everything you read. But a lot of people are looking for something that helps them, A, identify the top stories of the day, put them in context, and then evaluate the stories that are being told about those individual pieces of tech news. So that's what Tech Narratives is intended to do. So that's cool. I mean, give us an example. Like, give us an example of a narrative and, and some of the stories that play into that. Sure. So the archetypal narrative, I think, is um, Apple is doomed. And so that is one of the actual <laughs> narratives that I have on the site. And it, it's one of the most pervasive, long-lasting <clears throat> narratives out there. It's also one of the most ridiculous in some ways. Um, because, you know, especially at a time like the present when it's literally the most valuable company in the world and just reported another quarter of massive earnings and revenues, um, you know, it can seem on the face of it ridiculous. And so I'm not really suggesting that there is a prevailing narrative that Apple is doomed, but there are people who kind of regularly tell stories that fit into that broader narrative that sort of suggests that somehow things are going wrong at Apple. And so that is one of the narratives that I have is Apple is doomed. And if you were to look at the essay 
um, about that particular narrative. What it does is say, okay, here is the narrative. This has been pervasive. It's been around for a long time. But it also talks about the fact that there are others uh, who, especially in the sort of Apple blogger community and so on, who have a different narrative, which sometimes could be described as Apple can do no wrong. And so you have, I think more so than with any other company in the industry, you have this sort of duality of views, this sort of uh, bifurcation between extremes where on the one hand you have people that are always looking for evidence that Apple's about to go down the toilet at any minute and on the other hand you've got people that will defend absolutely everything that Apple ever does and try to put it in the best, brightest possible light and context. And of course the reality is somewhere in between. You know, Apple is not a perfect company. It's made plenty of mistakes in its history, continues to make those mistakes today and has some real weaknesses and shortcomings. And so this essay basically breaks this down and says the truth is in the middle here are some areas where the the myths are kind of overblown. Here are some areas where there are some real challenges right now and how Apple might need to deal with these things. And so it just takes this narrative, which is basically this sort of myth that's grown up around a company, breaks it down and explains what's really going on. And so, you know, that's one example of a narrative. I'll, I'll, there are I think there are about three dozen on there right now, um, and I'll continue to add them as it seems to make sense. So there are several that are Apple-specific. So two of the other specific Apple ones are Apple doesn't get services, for example, so cloud services and all that kind of stuff. That's been a prevailing narrative. Another one is Apple is behind in AI, so artificial intelligence and that kind of thing. That's been one that's really come up a lot over the past year or two. There's a fourth one around Apple, which is more of a positive one, which is Apple wins on privacy. And so, you know, none of these titles are intended to suggest that this is the truth. They're intended to suggest this is a narrative around the company, which is worth evaluating and breaking down. And so those are some examples as it relates to Apple. But, you know, with Facebook, there's Facebook copying Snapchat. There's a current narrative there. Uh, Alphabet lacks focus is another one, you know, relating to Alphabet. Amazon dominates e-commerce is one relating to Amazon. Um, you know, Microsoft's uh, comeback is one of the ones around Microsoft that seem to be going through this renaissance right now. Um, Samsung bungled the Note 7 recall. So some of these are very focused and uh, narrow about a particular news event that's perhaps shorter in duration than sort of a longer lasting narrative. But, you know, each of these then breaks that down, has a whole set of individual news items tied to them uh, and just tries to put context around all of that. Yeah, that's great. So, uh, so last thoughts. Like, what what else do you want to kind of say about this? Yeah, this project. Yeah, so as I say, the website is live. You can go to it now. It's technnarratives.com. I'm going to be talking about it publicly from uh, this week onwards. So uh, I'm going to be trying to get the word out. So if any of you um, go visit it, find it useful, then please feel free to to share the content, to share the website, uh, share individual pieces from it. Uh, I'd love to get the word out as broadly as possible. You know, over the next few weeks, I'm going to be just trying to see is this something that people see value in. It's taken a fair amount of my time over the last month and a half or so to build it up and to, to keep the daily flow of content going. Uh, it's something that I think the industry needs, but if the industry decides otherwise, then I need to know that sooner rather than later. So <laughs> yeah. if you have feedback, I'd appreciate that. Certainly you can give that to me on, on Twitter or, or by email. And my email is pretty easy to find uh, on my website at, at jackdoorresearch.com, but it's it's yan at jackdoorresearch.com. Uh, so feel free to email me with any feedback too, positive or negative. Um, for now, this is all freely available. You can go to it. Everything is free. My plan is to introduce some kind of paywall in the next little while that separates some content um, from the rest and puts it behind a paywall. And, and I'm still debating how best to do that. So again, welcome your feedback on this point. But uh, I'm thinking what it may be is that, you know, the, the current week's uh, commentary on the news is behind the paywall and then the narrative essays are behind the paywall and older content uh, perhaps is, is freely available so people can get some sense of what's on the site. But we'll have to pay for the kind of up to the minute stuff and, and the really deep stuff that really provides a lot of value. So um, that's a business model that I'm debating at the moment. I'm guessing it would be a $10 a month type subscription per individual user and probably corporate subscriptions at some multiple of that. Um, so that's you know worth noting. My intention is to start charging for this if it proves popular enough that people are interested in it. Um, again, feedback would be very welcome. Um, and, you know, the, the whole point here is these narratives are pervasive. They're often unjust or irrational even. Um, it's a form of myth-making that both companies and their detractors engage in. And my intention here is to help people in, this, in the industry, people who observe the industry, to understand the narratives that are being told about their companies, to really understand what individual pieces of news really mean rather than what the reporter says they mean, um, which often is, means tying them into an existing narrative without really a lot of due diligence. Uh, and just helping people understand the, the real trends in the industry, what's actually happening, 
And so, uh, you know, in some ways it sits between what I do on Twitter, where I comment on a lot of stuff very briefly, and the blogging that I do on Beyond Devices and Tech Pinions and elsewhere, which is a lot deeper. You know, this is a, a single paragraph, which might be three lines, it might be 15, 20 lines, uh, but it's a single paragraph on these news items, and then a lot of depth behind that as well. And so this is kind of my contribution to trying to help the tech world deal with this phenomenon of narratives, which can be a positive force in that they help us to make sense to the world, but can also be negative because they tend to reinforce stereotypes, which often aren't actually true. So that's kind of the purpose there. I think this is exciting. I think it's a great project and I look forward to seeing where it's going. Well, thanks, Aaron. Um, and I'll link to Tech Narratives. I'll link to my, my 2014 piece about the danger of narratives on the website as well so that you guys can check those out. As I say, technarratives.com if you just want to go to it directly and not wait for uh, going to hunt for the link on the website. Um, let's move on to our third segment today, which is a discussion of Apple earnings. We, we did a bit of a preview last week, and they were reported this week, so we're going to do, do a bit of a deep dive into Apple's earnings. Lots to, to break apart there. You know, the headline was, Return to growth after three quarters of shrinkage, and and you know the year ago quarter when there was just a tiny, tiny bit of growth, um, but as usual, you know a lot of different moving parts underneath that. Um, so, Aaron, I don't know where you want to start with this. When we talked before we started recording, we talked about the whole issue of the extra week and this kind of quirk in Apple's reporting, where they don't report calendar quarters. Strictly speaking, they report a set number of weeks, and every few years they they tack on an extra week to get back in sync with the calendar. Well, and they got an extra week this last quarter that they've reported. And so there's an extra week of iPhone sales, of new iPhone sales, and during the holiday period. So, um, you know, it's interesting to question how much it is actually growth. Because um, you don't know, I mean, because if you're going to take out a week, you could do it in a way that it'd be a low-impact week, right? right. <laughs> to take out of that, or you could take out a very high-impact week. Um, it was a return to growth, not 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 an incredible one. I mean, it was a, you know, it was it was bigger than than any previous, you know, similar or any previous Q1, but uh, but not that much bigger than their biggest, right? Than their previous record in Q1. Mm-hmm. So the extra week is interesting. You made a good point though. I, I think yesterday observing that if you balance that against the currency headwinds they're facing, um, you know, maybe maybe the extra week is a wash. Because right. the dollar is still very strong um, internationally, mm-hmm. which makes Apple products a lot more expensive than they might otherwise be. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, maybe it, is a, maybe it is a wash. Yeah, no, it's, it's very interesting. I mean, currency headwinds were definitely a major <clears throat> topic of discussion on the earnings call. Luca Maestri talked about them a lot, both in terms of the current quarter just reported and then guidance for the next quarter and some of the moving parts there. Um, but, you know, there's a several percent um, effect from currency headwinds in China. I think it was 6% or something like that, six percentage points, um, you know, which is roughly the same scale as an extra week in the quarter. Um, you know, and the quarter's weeks aren't all the same. So you can't simply do the math and say, well, an extra week is another 7% or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that particular week is, you know, the week of New Year, which is after Christmas, which is, you know, one of the biggest weeks, obviously, for sales. Um, but, you know, still a big week for things like App Store sales and things like that. You know, New Year's Day was one of their biggest days ever, I think the biggest day ever for, for App Store. So, um, you know, it's very hard to really sort of parse out the impact of that extra week, but there are those currency headwinds as well, and those two offset each other somewhat, whether it's entirely, partially is, is impossible to tell. But, you know, there were, there were factors moving in both directions that were kind of outside the actual performance. And the um, truth is, anytime you're comparing quarters year over year, there are always variables like that right. that are moving in both directions. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, currency is always a factor lately, it feels like, but um, there's other things like product launches too, right? So they did launch an Apple Watch towards the end of the year this year. They didn't right. the previous year. They didn't launch an iPad towards the end of the year this year. They did the previous year. It was a larger iPad Pro. Um, so, you know, there's, there's all sorts of bits and pieces like that that actually are in the company's own control, um, but that still right. make comparisons year on year difficult because there are things that are either present or absent in different quarters. Yeah. Um, something else you brought up before we started recording was profits versus revenue. So there was this revenue growth, I think, of something like 3% revenue growth year on year. I mean, on the revenue side, it's fascinating to me that, you know, the last three December quarters, um, have all been in the sort of 74 to $79 billion range. You know, so two years ago, it was by far their biggest quarter ever off the back of the iPhone 6. Uh, last year, 
um, was just barely squeaked ahead of that with the iPhone 6s, and then every next the next three quarters were all well down on the previous year. Um, you know, this quarter back up into the 70s again, so 78 point something billion, I think it was altogether in revenue. You know, operating within a very narrow range, and then if you look at iPhone sales as a useful shorthand, and, and especially in Q4, where the the overall revenue number tends to be roughly um, similar in billion dollars to the number of iPhones sold. So. Um, there's a very close correlation between those two, obviously, because iPhone's the major driver of revenue and of of change in revenue from one quarter to the next, and it's the most cyclical product as well. Um, So revenues were up, but profits weren't, and you were kind of commenting on this, and it's interesting to kind of pick apart why that was. And if you look at the individual lines in the income statement, uh, you know, revenues were up, but cost of revenue was up by pretty much the same amount in dollar terms. So there was no sort of margin expansion, even though there was growth, and that, that's probably a result of several different things. It may have been partly sort of um, new manufacturing uh, costs to do with, say, AirPods or the new Apple Watches or whatever towards the end of the year. You know, the earlier on in a product cycle a product is, the lower the margins tend to be until they hit scale and hit their stride and then get the benefits of churning out, you know, millions and millions of the same thing over and over again. Um, so that's part of it. Um, it may have been partly, say, the jet black iPhone 7 Plus, which sold in very large numbers, is a more expensive product to manufacture. So there may have been some impact there. Um, but essentially, cost of revenues moved up in keeping with revenues. Where the margins got squeezed was actually in R&D spending. So you know, Apple added 400 and something million dollars of new R&D spend year on year. Uh, you know, and this is in context of things like Project Titan supposedly getting cut and refocused and so on. So, you know, it's always tempting to see Apple's entire R&D spend being about cars, but it's obviously not. There's obviously lots of stuff in there that goes into future iPhones and other products like that that already exist. Um, but, you know, this has been a theme throughout Tim Cook's time in charge at Apple is that the investment, not just in dollar terms, but even as a percentage of revenues in R&D continues to go up and up and up. They're spending more and more on research and development. And that was one reason why margins got squeezed year on year. That, yeah. So two thoughts about that. One, with the R&D spending go up, I think what's interesting about that story is we don't know the ending yet. I mean, Apple has spent <clears throat> you know, over a decade anyway, having relatively low R&D spending compared to its revenue for most companies. Yeah. You know, most companies are spending several times what Apple spends relative to the dollars that they earn from the R&D. And Apple's always been very much on the low end of that. Well, now that Apple's growing its R&D, I think there's there's a general expectation that there should be a lot of bang for their buck coming out of that. But we don't know that yet. It could just be that their R&D is getting less efficient, right? And that they're exploring more avenues that are dead ends. We just don't know yet. And so it's interesting that we don't know the end of that uh, that R&D story. The other thing that's interesting to me about this is that profits didn't go up, even though average selling prices went up through the majority of their categories, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, that was true in the iPhone, that was true in the Mac, two of their biggest units. Um, and, uh, And so it's interesting to me that even though average sales prices went up in a lot of their products, there wasn't, it, it didn't come along with higher margins. Yeah. Um, yeah. And this is one of the the other fascinating thing about currency headwinds, right? Because to the extent the dollar appreciates <coughs> against other currencies, uh, Apple has two choices in terms of how it prices products elsewhere. It can either maintain its margins in dollar terms by raising local prices, but then risk, you know, elasticity forces actual unit sales down, or um, you maintain prices in local currency, you try to get the same unit sales, but they're going to be less profitable. And so Apple always tries to strike a balance between those two things um, in the various markets where it operates. You know, where currencies move faster, obviously you have to move prices eventually, but smaller uh, fluctuations in the currency don't necessarily have to drive immediate changes in pricing. But, you know, either way, that's where the headwind comes from. Either you sell fewer goods because you have to raise the local price or you squeeze margins because you keep the local price the same. And so I think part of that margin compression is also and really it's not margin compression in terms of cost of sales went up with revenue so um it's just just they didn't expand as you might have expected to your point about asps rising in the iphone and mac categories um it's worth noting too that asps are actually well down in the ipad category and also um in likely in the watch category they obviously don't report that directly but given that they reduce the prices of, of the first generation watches the series one watches are coming in a lower price point and so on it's a good chance the asp dropped by you know 50 dollars or something over the past year so um you know that's worth noting too well and the uh... And the iPad that had the drop in average selling price is also the one that did better internationally compared mm. to the other hardware products. Mm. I, I think the iPad saw 
saw growth in international markets that it didn't necessarily see in the U.S. If I remember the numbers right. Yeah. And yeah. so, so that would be an illustration of what you're saying about whether or not they push prices down, you right. know, to 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 get, to maintain unit sales. Yeah, and obviously a year ago they had the launch of the bigger iPad Pro, so that that really obviously drove ASPs up because it was far more expensive than previous iPads had been. And so you know we're coming down from that in a quarter when that's now a year old and it isn't selling near near as much as it was a year ago. Um, but there's a lot of other stuff going on with the iPad too. I mean, in general, the revenues were well down, shipments were well down, ASPs were down. You know, so that kind of has a multiplier effect there. Um, but you know there was a lot of detail on the call which wasn't in the numbers that were reported which is worth noting so a year ago they added to the channel uh, this year they depleted the channel so that's one part of it Um, so you know there's a fairly significant difference there um, between those two numbers Uh, on top of that there was the launch of the iPad Pro last time around there was no new iPad towards the end of the year this in 2016 Um, and to your point there was growth in individual markets and they're still selling most iPads to new customers. So, um, you know, it's basically this ongoing story about the bases getting older and older and older and not replacing. Uh, and they're still finding new customers, but mostly at this point, I think, in emerging markets and other markets where the iPad's newer. Yeah, well, and, you know, this is these numbers are not yet lining up with Tim Cook's argument that this is the future of computing, mm-hmm. right? I mean, he's talked about this idea multiple times that the... Right that what they're doing with the iPad they sort of see as the future of computing and and it's not showing up yet. Right. Um, Marco Armand even wrote a piece on this mm-hmm. that came out yesterday basically questioning the idea and say, you know, maybe the future of computing is desktops, laptops, and iPads. And it's right. not just iPads, which yeah. seems to be the story that Tim Cook is selling. Mm. John Gruber replied to that to essentially say, and this is an important point, to say the iPad is not the future of computing ignores the incredibly fast ramp. I mean, it was a historic ramp. There has never been mm-hmm. a consumer electronics yeah. product in the history of the world that sold as many units as quickly as the iPad. That includes the iPhone. Yeah. Like the iPad it still holds that record. And uh, But the problem is, and we've talked about this idea before, and, and you just mentioned it a second ago, is that uh, replacement cycles are much longer than they are for iPhone. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, people are hanging on to iPads for uh, for as long as they hold on to their laptops or desktops. And, right. And, and so, but but it's still, the iPad isn't even coming close to reaching PC install base. Mm-hmm. And tablets generally aren't reaching the same numbers as far as PC install base goes. So, so, the, so it's still very much up in the air, this question of whether or not tablets and the iPad are the future computing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and... You know, it, it is the future of computing, not the present of computing. That's always the key thing, right? So they have a vision for the iPad, and, and Tim Cook said there was more stuff coming with the iPad in the next few months, so we'll see where that goes. But, yeah. you know, there is more to come, and maybe, you know, that balance starts to shift in time. <coughs> you know, Apple just brought out these powerful new MacBook Pros, you know, with a touch bar, and, and you know, that drove right. Mac sales to record highs in terms of revenue. So, um, you know, even Apple obviously doesn't think that people should only buy iPads going forward. They're still making lots of other stuff. So, um, but yes, it absolutely it challenges that again to use that word we were using earlier. It challenges that narrative right. about um, about the iPad and what it is. You know, Apple's trying to tell us a story about the iPad. It doesn't yet seem to be ringing true. You know, are they wrong? Are we just not there yet? You know, we don't quite know at this point. But uh, you know, there's an example of where a company's trying to spin its own narrative about its own product, and there's not a lot of evidence to support that yet. And so people are inherently skeptical of it. Um, one other thing that you'd mentioned when we were talking before we started recording was this idea of repatriation of cash. This was something that Tim Cook was asked about on the call and which he commented on. Um, and it's worth talking about because he, he made both some fairly promising remarks without a lot of specifics about it. Well, yeah, and I think more telling, they haven't issued any guidance actually predicting repatriation. I think Apple's overseas cash is, is almost, well, their their total cash on hand is now almost, a, a quarter of a trillion dollars. I, I, I saw somebody mention on uh, Twitter earlier that that could that 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 could essentially replace the GDP of Finland. Right. <laughs> so everybody yeah. in Finland could stay home. Apple could give them the money, <laughs> and they would have the same economic productivity for a yeah. year. That's an amazing thing. I'm sure, the EU would like that. <laughs> right. Well, they're trying to get it anyway. I yeah, guess. So. Exactly. Um, but. Uh, um, 
but you know, obviously, the vast majority of this is sitting overseas um, in Apple subsidiaries, and Apple would love to bring it stateside uh, for investment purposes here. Uh, there are acquisitions that they would be considering. I think there are, um, you know, potentially manufacturing uh, that they'd be exploring here. But having this cash, bringing the cash in, means it gets taxed pretty heavily. It's interesting that Tim Cook went out of his way to, to express optimism there, but like I said, Apple has not issued any guidance. Now, the guidance they would issue wouldn't relate to profit. This money is already profit, and it's been reported as such, but uh, but it might change the way that they spend. That would change some of their guidance. Yeah. Um, as a general as a general tone, though, I think if you are a fan of this idea of lower corporate income tax rates and also of the idea of a tax holiday for repatriation, um, if if Tim Cook is talking about it in positive ways, it's because he's had conversations with people of influence over this. And now having a Republican-controlled Congress and a Republican of the White House, all of whom are favorable to the idea of lower corporate income tax rates and repatriation, uh, you know, I think that Tim Cook went out of his way to talk about it on the call, tells mm-hmm. you that this is much more serious of a of a possibility than yeah, it's, it's been not just in, theoretical in a anymore. long time, yeah. yeah, and over a decade really. Right. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, I think one of the area that's worth talking about is the watch. Um, you know, this is obviously another area of focus where, again, the prevailing narrative has been that the watch has somehow failed, um, because it hasn't achieved the same numbers as the iPhone or the iPad. Um, and, uh, obviously there's the broader narrative about wearables and how they are in decline. And so it was very interesting to hear Tim Cook talk and use the term wearables. And I think use the term smartwatch for the first time too, actually he didn't sort of say the Apple watch is a smartwatch, but he compared it to a smartwatch category, which was interesting, but he talked about wearables in the context of the combination of the Apple watch and things like earpods and beats with W1 chips as well. So it was interesting to hear him talk that up, um, record Apple Watch unit sales and revenues apparently in the quarter. Um, you know, just trying to dig between the lines a little bit in the other products category. I'm guessing it was only by a little bit. I don't think they vastly exceeded any previous quarters and, and certainly not year on year. Um, but, you know, the the story here is one of a category that now sells, you know, 12 million or something a year. Um, you know, it's not enormous for Apple um, and not big enough to be broken out yet in its own right. But, you know, it's by far the successful product in that category that is struggling broadly and, um, you know, is generating decent amounts of revenue and profits for Apple. So um, very interesting to kind of see how that's going. Um, certainly not on the scale that some of us were expecting, including myself originally. Um, but a, a decent little earner at this point for Apple. Yeah, I, I mean, I think we shouldn't be surprised because the watch isn't that different. Series 2 watch isn't that different from Series 1, so I don't think we'd expect a huge shift in consumer right. demand for it. And so I think it, an expectation of moderate growth was about right on the nose for reasons outside of what we actually saw Apple report. And right. so, and it will stay that way. It, mm-hmm. it, unless the watch changes in a dramatic way, I don't think there's any reason to think that demand for it's going to change. Right. No, agreed. Um, let's talk about two last things. We'll talk about services, and then we'll talk about China briefly as well, and then we'll wrap up. Um, services, there was some interesting commentary, repeated the sort of projection that services would become the size of, a, I think it's a Fortune 100 company in its own right during the course of 2017, so they, they kind of reinforced that one. And they also talked about it doubling, I think, over the next four years. So... Uh, and that would put it, I think, at about $50 billion based on what we were talking about earlier. So, you know, very significant business in its own right. I saw people comparing it to Facebook and saying, oh, it's bigger than Facebook at this point. It's not technically true. Facebook's going to be reporting their numbers this afternoon and probably be bigger for Q4. Um, so I'm not sure it's quite past Facebook yet or that it will. Facebook's growing pretty fast too. But the point is it's a very sizable business in its own right. Um, Luca Maestri repeated his comments that he's made previously that it's on balance services as a segment is uh, more profitable than the company average. Um, so, you know, this isn't a break-even business or even a low-margin business at this point. This is a, a very highly profitable business, partly because of the way Apple reports. So it only reports its cut. Uh, as net revenue and so a good chunk of that is profit for, for say the apple the app store uh, and then a lot of other stuff like iCloud and apple care is is mostly margin as well so um you know a very healthy business growing very fast certainly the most consistent fastest growing segment that they have at this point the goal of doubling services revenue is what i'm especially interested in 
I mean, the idea of services revenue growing as their hardware platform, as their hardware install base grows, that makes sense. But there has to be something more coming for them to actually double. Some kind of multiplier effect. Right, because they're not going to be doubling their hardware sales over that time period with the way smartphones have essentially turned flat. Hmm. And so so the question is, you know, they they have to have other products and they have to have other services, businesses that they're considering, Mm -hmm. right? And TV seems like a really obvious one and who knows if they're going to be able to pull that off over the next few years. But but it just feels like there has to be even more than that. And there are ways that they can continue to grow. I think they can make iCloud a better offering. Um, You know, Apple Music and, and the idea of original content definitely seems like a place that they are heading um, yeah. whether or not it's through Apple music in the same confusing way that iTunes sells TV shows, who knows, but, right. <laughs> but right. But I mean, the original content seems to be a path that, that they could get there with, but they need to add new businesses into the services category to get that doubling. I just don't see how it could happen organically based on their installed base over right. the next few years. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Yeah. I, I, I think, it was interesting to hear them talk about this 150 million subscription number. So this is not just Apple's own subscriptions to things like Apple Music, but it's also third-party subscriptions, whether that's you know MLB TV or Netflix or whatever subscriptions that are purchased through the App Store. Um, but you know that's another thing that they're talking up, and that you know people sometimes criticize Apple for describing its services business as services because a lot of it's one-off purchases. Um, you know, a lot of App Store purchases obviously are one-offs. Um, but they're talking up that subscription element now, and that that turns into a very sort of predictable annuity-based revenue stream um, in its own right. Uh, And so they're going to continue to talk that up. And if you think about it in those terms and subscriptions, you know, there are lots of other subscriptions that could eventually, you know, be channeled through the App Store. You know, Spotify and people like that have obviously resisted that model because Apple takes too big a cut for their liking. Um, But Netflix has embraced it now. You know, there are plenty of other TV uh, service providers that have started to embrace it. Um, you know, on the Apple TV, the cut is smaller. Apple rejigged the cut that they take after the first year last year as well, even for non-Apple TV uh, services. So, um, you know, that there could be quite a lot of growth there in third-party services, even if they're not Apple first-party services through, you know, subscription TV stuff. Uh, but obviously, if Apple launches its own TV service, that, that would be a major driver, much bigger than just taking a cut of somebody else's revenue. Right. Um, let's briefly mention China. Um, Ch- Apple doesn't technically report China as a segment. It reports Greater China, and that includes Hong Kong. Um, one of the things that came out in the earnings call yesterday was that uh, the trends between Hong Kong and Chi- the People's Republic of China are very different. And so Hong Kong is the big drag at this point. And China was actually, I think he said, flat year on year in terms of reported revenues and actually up 6% uh, on constant currency basis. Take out the extra week, you probably lose that 6% again and get back to flat. But the point is, you know, China itself is a lot healthier than it might look from looking at that greater China segment that Apple reports. It's Hong Kong that's kind of the drag for a whole variety of different reasons, not least because it's been something of a clearinghouse for phones that are eventually sold elsewhere in the world uh, by third parties. Um, but, you know, China overall is one where Apple continues to struggle. You know, it was a huge boon in 2014, 2015. It was a drag in 2016, much less so in Q4 than the rest of the year. But still a drag. It's the only region that didn't grow for them. And so there's this big ongoing question about whether China can get back to growth or at least shrink less, because if that happens, that actually changes the whole equation for the company as a whole as well. Well, and we talked about this idea when we uh, discussed uh, Apple in India, because they yeah. seem to, they, they've portrayed India as like the next China for them. Mm-hmm. The problem in both of those stories is they're tied very much to forces well outside of their control. Right. Yeah. It's about these, it's about these countries um, you know, having a growing middle class essentially mm-hmm. is what it comes down to, and that's not something Apple can influence at all. Right. They can just take advantage if it happens. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's the problem with with the China story and also with the India story is whether or not this growing middle class gets to where Apple needs it to be able to buy their products. Right. Absolutely. Okay, well, let's wrap up our discussion of Apple earnings there and then just move on to our weekly pick. And Aaron, you have a, a book, I believe, to recommend to us. I do. It's called the. It's a children's book called The Wild Robot. Uh, it is uh, sorry, written by Peter Brown. Um, uh, it was a New York Times bestseller, um, an Amazon best book of the year top pick. It's won some uh, children's books awards um, for 2016. 
the the basic story is about a robot. Um, so there's a company that sells robots. You don't know much about the company uh, during the book, but essentially they have a they have a, a cargo ship that uh, is caught up in a storm, and uh, all of these individual robots that are created up. Some of them wash, most of them sink, but some of them wash ashore, and only one of these robots actually somehow remains unscathed and ends up on this this very wild island, and I it's just a, essentially a wilderness. You get the feeling it's it's somewhere north, based on the animals and everything that are encountered. I don't want to give much more detail than that, but it's about this robot kind of exploring and discovering this island, and uh, it is a fantastic, fantastic book. But I have to say. It's a fantastic book so far. <laughs> my, my son and I are are probably uh, I don't know. We have about ten percent of the book left, so we're in the really exciting okay. part of yeah. the story. But uh, it's really endearing. Um, what sort have, of age is it designed for? Uh, so uh, I think grades. So Amazon recommends uh, ages eight to eleven. Okay, that fe- that feels about right. Although my thirteen year old read it and, and absolutely loved it. Okay. He, in fact, devoured it uh, when he first read it. Um, uh, anyway, it's a really endearing story, really cool storyline. They're genuine surprises. Like, as I've been reading it to my 10-year-old, there have been moments when he's all tensed up and then something <laughs> good happens and he, you know, is, like, cheering and excited yeah. about the outcome. So the story is told really well. Um, again, this is all with one massive massive disclaimer that i haven't actually finished it and sometimes so the ending, ending could be terrible yeah the, the ending makes all the difference <laughs> in the world but but i'm going based on my 13 year old's recommendation that it's great because he's finished okay. it he knows the ending and he's obviously not telling us thank heavens but um <laughs> but anyway the wild robot by peter brown it's it's a really delightful read and so i i highly recommend it even if you don't have kids that age i i think it's still a fun book to read and it's right. not too long so Fantastic. Well, thanks, Aaron. We'll put a link to that along with links to some of the other stuff we've talked about on the website. Thank you for being with us. We appreciate it. As always, give us your feedback, give us your reviews and ratings on iTunes, Overcast, wherever else you listen to podcasts. That always helps new people to find the podcast as well. And uh, again, we welcome feedback on the podcast itself, on the things that we talk about. If you have insights into the things that we've talked about, then we always love to hear from our listeners on that as well. We got some feedback along those lines last week. So thanks to, to those that sent that. Uh, But thanks again for being with us and we look forward to being with you again next week.